Hello and welcome. This is a new podcast of the American Journal of Public Health. And as usual, I'm here with uh, Vicky Mays. Uh, and uh, we will be moderating together this fascinating discussion with our two guests, uh, author of a new book called uh, Vaccinating America, the inside story behind the race to save life and end the pandemic. And so we'll go over these two aspects of the title in a few minutes. I want to introduce them. We have Michael Fraser. Uh, he is the executive director of the ASTO, which is the Association of State and Territorial Health Officers. Michael, uh, nice to see you. Nice to have you with us. Thank you. Thank you. And we have here Brent Ewig, who is Chief of Policy and Government Affairs in the Association of Immunization Managers. All right. Glad to be so, here. yeah, thank you. And so we are uh, going to start right away with uh, why is this book called The Inside Story? Great, you know, great question. Uh, we really felt as we thought about this project, that there were a lot of books about the um, development of vaccine, the science of vaccine, some of the, the early stories of COVID. But for us, the inside story meant uh, the, the real story of what public health was doing during the pandemic and all that happened both in Washington and states to make vaccination possible and to um, really just, I guess, shine a light on the work of public health in a way that none of the other books had, had done. So we, we have the, uh, the, the external picture. We saw the vaccine being produced and, and, and the shot being made, et cetera. And you tell us what's the mechanism that allowed everything to happen. Is this, Brent, your opinion too, that that's what the inside story means? That, that's what we were trying to get at, that, you know, millions, tens of millions of Americans remember going down to their doctor, to the stadium, to CVS, wherever it was that they got that first dose, felt that relief and exhilaration, but they don't know what it took to get that vaccine to that point of access. And so that's what we were really trying to, to share the story of the, the thousands of details that federal, state and local officials had to, to plan and coordinate the numerous challenges we had to overcome to get there, funding being one of the, the most um, uh, critical ones, um, and just doing this in an unprecedented manner. There never never had so much vaccine gotten out to so many people so fast. Um, and and the other part of the inside story is is folks, you know, know that this got to them, but they don't know that it's largely a government operation. There were tens of thousands of, of private sector partners um, that were critical, but it was really planned and executed by, by governmental, public health and military, federal, state and local. And it, it, it's actually a little bit of an ironic title, because while we were on the inside, there's a theme in the book that public health was on the outside. And there was a lot of times when public health was on the outside, even on the inside. So That's we were right. playing a little bit with that in the title, too. That's right. Absolutely. Absolutely right. And, and, and actually, it's fascinating. I have to say that even though I knew some of it, I discovered in this book, ah, what did you think, Vicky? You also knew a lot about it. Isn't it a revelation to go through this book and realize all the dimension of this uh, race? I thought it was absolutely spellbinding. It was like a book. 
like we weren't reading about public health, but we were in the middle of a story of public health. And that's what I really liked is, you know, your ability to show us people think medicine did this. And it was like public health was critical. Uh, and, you know, I, I like why, what led you to make sure that people understood public health? Because I think it's a major contribution in when the next thing happens. So why did, why did you want to tell that story? Thanks. Thanks so much for that. Uh, you know, we, we, the Brett and I are friends. We've been together for a long, long time. And we've all been at the same meeting where people have said, nobody respects public health. Nobody knows what public health is all about. We've been at meetings for campaigns for public health and new organizations that are going to tell the story of public health. And we just really felt like COVID was the place we could make a big uh, splash, if you will, bring awareness to the work of governmental public health in a way that just we never had the opportunity before. And that's a silver lining of the pandemic. It's also a real problem, obviously, we can talk about that, but it, the, the ability to recognize what governmental public health did and to shine a spotlight on it um, just seemed like the right thing to do. And frankly, most of that was Brent. He's a very narrative storyteller. He's fantastic. So Brent should weigh in on that one too. A, a partnership through and through. My, Mike's vision, I, I just had the pleasure to be part of executing it. You know, and that, that was really it. We wanted, you know, like Mike said, we, so many times we, we hear complaints, people don't get us, they don't understand us, and therefore they don't fund us. Um, and in public health advocacy, you're told, you know, people will forget your data, they'll remember your story. So we really wanted to put the story out there and, and just share it and, and make the invisible visible. That That's our goal. And, and you know, we're at this crossroads right, right now where memories are fading quickly. Um, we're already repeating mistakes and, and you know, the, the funding is already stagnant. Um, so we really want to get out there and share the story with that eye to, to let's not repeat these mistakes. Let's take some of these lessons learned. This is just a, a small contribution. There needs to be a lot more work there. But then let's codify the lessons because lessons learned on the shelf won't help anybody. Um, and we want to be better prepared for next time. We're, yeah. we're glad to hear you really felt it was a story because we wanted to make it a book that wasn't really wonky. There's a lot of detail that is wonky in there, but we wanted to have that narrative because, again, we wanted it to be applicable to a broad audience, not just folks that kind of got it ahead of time. So we kept joking about, is this something our moms would understand? <laughs> and it kind, kind of passed the test, not fully. I'm still talking yeah. to my mom about it. <laughs> but everyone, everyone, I think in public health is going to be fascinating to, to read the story of the relationship between uh, the army, the White House and, and CDC. I mean, and, and every public health person that had some expertise. And, and I think that's the main lesson that I personally got from that book is that uh, the, the, the government left the people with the public health expertise, which is something that people are trained to or don't have. I mean, it's not something you can, you can just uh, develop like that spontaneously and, and gave all the power to the army to organize the distribution, but left the people of from public health out and uh, they had to manage to find a solution. So tell us a little bit more about this tension that occurred. Yeah, I'll start. I mean, that we wanted to hand, handle that delicately because we, we started with a, a perspective that everybody was, you know, focused on the mission here, doing the best they can. And in the, in the case of the Army folks, I mean, they literally were following orders. 
Um, but but there was a certain hubris there of we know how to get military supplies to the Middle East, so how hard can vaccine be? Um, and and weren't considering all the behavioral and and hesitancy issues that we knew were out there, um, and and weren't listening to the CDC and the states early on. Eventually they came around, and and that that's the success story is, is coordination improved, um, but but late, and and the understanding of the funding needed needed for that last mile. Public health knew that from the get-go, but it took a long, long time to convince the military. Um, so, so we wanted to document those tensions, again, in a respectful way, um, not to point fingers, but to, to say there were mistakes made in the planning um, that should be taken into consideration next time. And, and if you have a plan, um, don't immediately discount it just because it's not your plan. But I, I get that that's human nature, but I think that's, that's what we saw was a lot of disregard of existing plans. I think it's a case also of something that we talk a lot about with when we talk specifically about CDC, which is, you know, their main headquarters is in Atlanta and the action it was in D.C. And, you know, this is something that we hear a lot about a lot of public health responses. So I think, you know, given what CDC is doing now in terms of its modernization and transformation, I think there's a lot of interest in assuring better connectivity and even physical presence in Washington for the agency when something like this happens, which obviously we talk about a lot in the book. So, I mean, the the production of the, the vaccine is something, I mean, you describe it very well, et cetera, but just remind us, you know, briefly, but what are the steps that public health had to do to bring that vaccine into, uh, you know, the most, isolated rural place of America. And yet, I want to remind our um, uh, listener, in my age group, 99% or CDC says 95% of vaccinated people age 65 or older. How? What were the steps for that? Well, there, there's a lot of steps. I'll let Frank get into that because that's what his members do. But I think the point here is public health does this every day with a lot of other vaccines. The, the issue here was speed and scale and some of the requirements of the new vaccines that made it much more complicated. But we weren't starting from scratch and that was part of the lesson here, you know, the, the kind of the warp speed conversation early on uh, didn't acknowledge what planning had gone into place and what systems were in place ahead of time. It's a lot of work. It's not just shipping boxes as you, as you mentioned, but I'll let Brent cover some of the steps that immunizations go through. Yeah, I think that's the place to start is, you know, 75 million doses of childhood vaccines annually through the Vaccines for Children program give us a great kind of structure to build upon. But but that was the challenge is how do you rapidly um, adapt that to an, 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 the, the entire population? So, I, it, you know, probably don't have time to go through all the steps, but it was, you know, building the systems to to expand the, the prioritization, the ordering, um, the, the you know, provider enrollment. Um, and outreach and really going from, I think there's about 44,000 enrolled providers in um, in VFC. We quadrupled that to over 200,000. And so that was, I think, the the main part of the challenge and, and just finding how do we get it to every single corner, every every state, um, islands, territories. And, and so that was the real place where creativity kicked in and, and public health did things that they hadn't done previously, um, where it was sort of, you know, using your existing private sector providers. There was just a lot of creativity in set, setting up all those max vax sites, um, working with the pharmacies in a, in a vastly expanded way that really started in 2009 with H1N1, but really, really came into fruition here, um, where we had so many tens of thousands of sites 
um, that were expanded. And so, and then the monitoring and, and the, the, the communications and outreach, and that really gets into the hesitancy chapter of, you know, where, where we fell short perhaps was not anticipating just how entrenched that hesitancy would become. Um, so a lot of that is where we're focused now is that outreach and enrollment, continual engagement, um, meeting people where they are, finding who are the, the trusted community messengers, because we know trust in government has been strained. Um, but the good news is people still trust their provider pretty much. And so um, so making yeah. sure that, that those folks are empowered. Yeah. I mean, remember also early on, especially these these were, I mean, volumes of vaccine that a lot of sites were not able to even use at first. They were just they were getting these huge shipments. Um, the, the storage requirements, the temperature requirements. I mean, just the logistics of that alone were amazing. But the the issue I think that we don't really talk a lot about in the book, but you know, if we updated it might, would be, you know, there's just never gonna be a one size fits all approach to something like this in the future. That with 50 states and all these geographies, demographic changes, I mean, yeah, every, you know, 90% or more of the United States lives, a population of the US lives within five miles of a pharmacy. But if you go out to Alaska, not a lot, you know? So, I mean, they're just really thinking that through or a state where there's there aren't large chain pharmacies. There's several states that don't have that. State law around who can vaccinate had to be changed. And that took federal, federal action. I mean, there are just myriad rabbit holes in something like this that um, we really wanted to capture because it, again, it wasn't simple, put in a box and FedEx it. You know, we're so used to getting our Amazon order, you know, that day or the day, next day. This was this was massive and unprecedented. And we really wanted to tell tell the story as to why. Just like you said, there were thousands of details to this process. Yes, you know, kind of uh, ask a question based on some of the things that you're saying. And that is, I'm going to do a play on words about your title when you talk about the race. Because one of the things that we knew is race was going, race, ethnicity, gender, age, you know, they, those were going to be big issues. And as Alfredo started, age for some groups got solved, you know, faster than others. So in thinking about, particularly for a group like AFTO that is on, you know, really thinking through, you know, kind of state and local level issues, what would you suggest is the lesson that's the most important in terms of reaching those rural or those I don't use the word hesitancy, but those that, you know, delayed in terms of getting the vaccine because of concerns that they had. Absolutely. Yeah. What, what we learned was the hyper local nature of this, that that this was this was really door to door public health, literally in a lot of places. It was folks knocking on doors, sharing information, referring people to the van down the street, that kind of a campaign. That's something that happens uh, in public health in lots of ways, but not at this scale. And I think that's a big lesson. And how do you, how do you plan hyper local, you know, neighborhood by neighborhood, city block by city block, and what community partners do you need to engage today in case you have to do that tomorrow, which public health had to start with, but certainly had lots to do. And that's where our local health departments came in, our big cities, county health departments came in and a huge focus on community-based organizations which I think was another major lesson, the, the role that community-based organizations can play in scale and spread of public health interventions and the need to do that very strategically. I just see yeah, that the threat on target and, and putting equity at the center from, from leadership from the very top 
all the way down and, and funding it. I think those were two of the key lessons that particularly the Biden administration, you know, brought in an equity as central focus, made sure that there was dedicated funding to those trusted community groups. And and I'll say, you know, what we're seeing with so much turnover in public health leadership, both Mike's membership and, and even within the AIM membership, we've had over 50% of immunization managers are new since the pandemic started. Losing those connections to communities and, and community groups is something that really concerns me, that, that loss of institutional knowledge and trust and knowing, you know, if you're talking about this city, these are the key leaders you want to make sure are engaged and, and have the resources um, to reach the people that we need to. The good news is, you know, we, with with that focus and funding, um, we've, we've done better on equity with this vaccine than, than most others. And, and so the challenge now is how do we learn from that and sustain it, expand it? Yeah. No, I, I totally agree with the, with Vicky on that. I think that is going to, it, it was a weakness of the whole campaign. And uh, it was also related to the weakness of the surveillance system and, and the health uh, monitoring system, which uh, hopefully will be uh, uh, transformed. But still, as you show in the book, this is a success of public health. And let me tell you, if 65% of the country is vaccinated, the next president that is elected with 65% of the vote will hear it. Landfall. You know, <laughs> I mean, and, and, and she will brag about it. But <laughs> we need to brag about this success. And so, so you say the race, you know, to save lives. How many lives did we save? Well, the, great news. The, the, Ahead, Common, Commonwealth Fund attributes of over three million lives saved to to the vaccine program, um, and you know, which is incredible when you think about it, uh, and and also over uh, eighteen million hospitalizations avoided. So, yeah, pretty pretty success. These are large numbers. And and I'll just add that that drives over a trillion dollars in in avoided healthcare costs and. So that's on based on about a $40 billion is what the federal government invested in research, development, manufacture, purchase, distribution and administration. That $40 billion, you know, was was supported wild bipartisan margins. I think only five people in, in the entire House voted against, you know, some of these bills that that should be held up as a probably one of the best bipartisan public investments in American history to save that many lives and that much money. Um, the challenge now is, you know, we often say, let's reinvest some of that savings in a more stable public health infrastructure. The problem I've been told by economists is we have a wrong pocket problem. The money we saved, you know, isn't sitting in some federal account. It's it's in less hospital spending and other things. So so we're struggling now of how we make that case. Um, but your point that this has been a great success, that that was the, the essence of the book is people thought, you know, trust in government is low, but this is a place where we wanted to share that story um, we could work our entire careers and probably never have the opportunity, hopefully never have the, the challenge again of saving that many lives in so little time. Yeah. And, and to me, that's the most frustrating part of this, which is this should have been something everybody celebrated. And yet it became so political, it became such a, you know, don't have a pandemic in a presidential election year. <laughs> you know, it's going to get it's going to get uh, dragged into it. But this should have been the thing that unites us. This should have been the success that we all could celebrate a, a really a, a truly American success. And that's totally lost in the current narrative around public health and threats to public health authority and folks looking to undermine uh, what worked. So for us, it was important to tell this story as a success, even though we did see so much suffering and, and so much death. 
um, there were there is a lot of good that that happened, and we wanted to share that as well. Well, maybe you have a book two, and book two might be um, you know we did have a lot of successes in terms of public health, but public health still has a job, and I'm wondering what you're thinking about this, which is the job of the aftermath. So now, for example, state of California talks about 33 thousand kids that were left without parents and some of whom are moving into foster care. You know, we have neighborhoods that, you know, economically, you know, we're going to stop soon. So economically, there things are going to change. So maybe you can give us some inkling as to what you learned about the successes of public health in terms of vaccination and life-saving that can also help us in terms of well-being. Vicky, that one's tough because, um, you know, that was the, the hardest part of the book to write is how, how do you frame this as success, success when we've lost so many and uh, in particular, you know, the hundreds of thousands that died after a free, safe, effective vaccine became available and where's the accountability for that? And so we talked to some people, you know, how, how do you begin to process that? So it, it's a great question. Um, I mean, I think from my perspective, you're right. One of the first things we have to do, and, and maybe the end of the public health emergency that's coming on May 11th is the time to do it, is, is to, to have that national pause and say, Let, let's memorialize all that we've lost and, and grieve for that uh, and remember those people that, that are left without loved ones now. Um, and, and it's maybe too soon to begin to talk about that, but there's been a memorial to 9-11, you know, to, to every war. We need to at least start that dialogue. Again, it might be too soon. And then we need to turn to, to codifying those lessons learned. That That's what we owe those people is identifying in an independent, try to get it out of politics. There's a lot of you know, oversight happening on the Hill right now, and, and that needs to happen. But I think from my perspective, I'd like to see a 9-11 type commission that takes us out of politics, that that studies it closely. And we, you know, the book can contribute to that, but this needs to look at the entire pandemic and then commit to, to putting those lessons learned into policy as we did after 9-11 um, and make people safer in the future. Yeah, it's a, it's a tough question. It's the question I think that we need to be asking. It's the fact that when we tell people to stay home, not everybody can do that. When we tell people to, you know, isolate and shelter in place, not everybody can do that in a household that has lots of folks living together and really understanding when we tell people to stay home for 10 days or 14 days, someone's got to help with groceries and someone's got to help, you know, and, and it's all of those things that were abstract. And certainly we've had experiences of in much smaller um, outbreaks, but, you know, the really thinking through for the future and planning for the future, what are, what are these, what, you know, we call social determinants, what are these other cross-sector conversations we need to have to assure that when we are making these recommendations based on science, we're also thinking about really the sociology of this and, and you know, the human need part of this. Yeah, and, and, and the book covers that uh, very nicely. I mean, you have a large section about the limitation, etc. In my view, you went too far. Uh, I, I mean, I, as you know, I, I'm, I'm much more positive about this experience, despite all its uh, limitation and criticism and could have done better. But uh, I don't think we ever done as well. And uh, and so I want, you know, the title say end the pandemic. And uh, maybe we could end this podcast by saying is the has the pandemic ended? 
It's a funny thing. The, the pandemic was over for a lot of Americans before it was over for a lot of epidemiologists, that's for sure. <laughs> and, you know, I think the um, the sort of inconvenient truth is it's not over and that this is now something we've got to live with and and control for and think through and, you know, create new vaccines for. Um, I think what we meant the, by using the word end was, you know, really the acuity of this, the um, the impact of, of COVID, obviously a lot different um, over the last few months than it had been last few years. So I think it's over it, 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 in that sense. But the whole narrative around the, the, the pandemic being over really before it was over, uh, I think is something we have to look at and, and really think through uh, public health messaging in a world where people were just done with it regardless um, and didn't want to wear the mask anymore and weren't going to get another vaccine. Uh, and so, yeah, it was over before it was over. <laughs> yeah. and, and I don't think the WHO has declared an end. And obviously the, the U.S. government, the public health emergency will be ending May 11th. And again, I think, you know, if we use that as a chance to, to mourn and, and memorialize those who we lost, let, let's honor the people that did this work, and that, that's a big part of the book. So I think that's a good place to end is, is where we started in the book by thanking all of those thousands and tens of thousands of partners um, who played a, a leading role in this and, and got good results, 3.2 million lives saved, over a trillion dollars. Um, it, it's it's just a, an unprecedented and, and good positive story that we wanted to yeah, share. Yeah, the, the health officials that have read the book and shared their feedback with me, and there have been a few, really appreciated the the story being told um, because there is a lot of blind sight. There's a lot of Monday, you know, morning quarterbacking going on and people are spinning a narrative that isn't based in fact and, and more in hope or what they wanted to see happen. So we thought that that was really important. And um, they also said, you know, there were things in the book they didn't know was happening or were happening. And that was important because they wondered what was going on a lot of times too. So Thanks to them, as Brent mentioned, it's really a book about about public health leadership and public health professionals. Yes. And Vicky, who would you recommend this book to? Oh, I've already thought about that. My students are going to get parts of this book in terms of teaching. It's almost like this is the best way for me to be able to help them to understand um, public health, not as just some see it as like, you know, a, you go out and you do good and they don't understand that you need partnerships, you need, you know, you need a lot more and I want them to be prepared. So I'm prepared as, you know, in my other hat of being an instructor that students really can have the vision that you provided in your storytelling so that they know how to enter public health and be effective. You know, Mike and Brent, who in the world could give such a conclusion about your book? I think it's just terrific. And uh, we're going to end with these uh, good words from Vicky. That was fantastic. Thank you for being there. Thank you for writing such a great book. It's a very important book. And I told you for me, it's close to, it, it's similar to the one that was written on swine flu in 76. You've guaranteed that the memory remains and write another book <laughs> thank you thank you okay. i don't know about Very that kind. but thank, thanks <laughs> take care everybody bye-bye really appreciate the kind words thanks for having us yeah. on thank thanks. you thanks.